Hi. Hey, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. Um, yeah, we're chatting about hell today. Um, I, I try to wear, like, a Manchester United shirt because it's the Red Devils, but, like, <laughs> that's as, like, the best strokes I've got. That and give them hell. <laughs> Can we pray together? Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are just. We thank you that you are good. And we thank you that you are so kind to us. Lord Jesus, we come before you as your children, and we approach a, a hard truth of your scripture. And we ask for your help, that Heavenly Father, you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that we would hear from your word, that we would be equally encouraged and grateful for the cross of you, Jesus, but that our hearts would be broken at our loved ones who don't know you. Give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we begin to look at the reality of hell together, I have to admit that this has been a particularly hard week and a particularly hard sermon to prepare for. In the last week, I found myself at a loss for words, feeling inadequate and unable to write as I've considered the weight of the biblical doctrine of hell. I found myself being troubled again and again, feeling disturbed as I've read through the biblical imagery and the teachings on hell, feeling shaken as I've reflected on the eternal destiny of people that I know and love who don't follow Jesus. Until recently, whenever the idea of hell and the idea of loved ones possibly heading there crossed my mind, I quickly brushed it aside and tried to try and think of something a little more pleasant. And as a Christian, while I've always believed in hell in my mind, I've tried to not let the doctrine penetrate my heart. But I can no longer do this. I can no longer acknowledge hell with my lips without preventing my heart from feeling its weight. More than any other week, I found myself broken before God, needing to just stop, get on my knees, and weep. Because hell is not one of those doctrines where you can just toss in your two cents, shrug your shoulders, and move on. No. There's too much at stake. Too many people are at stake. And the Bible has too much to say. I also recognize that this is a particularly hard sermon to hear. That for many people in our culture today, and perhaps for some of you here today, the Bible's teaching on hell is one of the greatest obstacles to faith in Jesus. The Christian belief in a God that would purposely punish people in hell is seen as outdated, narrow-minded, and morally repulsive. And that Christians who believe in hell are seen as intolerant, unloving, and offensive. The doctrine of hell also raises difficult questions about our faith and our God. How could a good and loving God send people to hell? How could a God who willfully punishes people for eternity be worthy of praise and worship? What about my friends, my family members, my neighbors, my colleagues? What about them who don't know Jesus? Is God really going to send them to hell just because they don't trust and believe in the God of the Bible? I think that it's appropriate to acknowledge that for some people here today, this discussion also opens up old wounds. 
loved ones who died not believing in Christ, loved ones who are still alive but who have walked away from the faith and rejected Jesus, or even past experiences with Christians who, rather than being filled with love and compassion, have used the doctrine of hell to, as an excuse to hate and to hurt. I recognize that the Bible's teaching on hell can be a source of great pain, and I don't want to take that for granted. This morning is a hard one, and I'm going to have to say some tough things, and we're going to have to read some tough things, but please know that I don't take any of it lightly. My prayer this morning is that you would open, you'd be open to hear the words of Jesus, that you'd be open to see him as he truly is, as the just judge of the living and the dead, and as the conquering king over sin and death, and the savior who came to save us from hell. Because here's the reality of hell. Without hell, we cannot fully appreciate the coming of Jesus Christ. Without hell, we cannot fully appreciate his death and resurrection. Without hell, we cannot fully appreciate our salvation and our hope as followers of Jesus. Without hell, we can't fully appreciate the gospel. Because right at the, right at the heart of the gospel is being saved from hell through the cross for the new heavens and the new earth. And so, just as a great painting is often, it's often the dark backdrop that makes the foreground shine with so much clarity. So there's a sense in which only when we descend into the depths of hell that, we, that the wonder of God's love and grace appears in its amazing glory. In the gospel, we see that the wonder of salvation is set against the dark depths of our own need and sinfulness. And we cannot fully appreciate what it means to be raised to the promise of heaven until we realize that we have been raised from the prospect of hell. Without hell, we cannot fully appreciate the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And significantly, Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. In fact, if you were to count up all the verses, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. For example, take Matthew's gospel. Here are just a few things that he said. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we could go on and on and on. These are Jesus' very words. And in them, we see the theme of judgment leading to condemnation and leading to conditions that are variously described as weeping, gnashing of teeth, flames of fire, darkness, and destruction. These are Jesus' very words. And the question becomes why? Why does Jesus, loving, caring, and compassionate Jesus, proclaim these words of warning? Why does Jesus, the one who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, also declare these words of judgment? 
Why does Jesus, the one who, as he hung on the cross, cried out for the people who were killing him, Father, forgive them, also cry out, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Why does Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived, say these words? And why does he say them again and again? Why will he not keep silent when it comes to hell? Because he's the one who comes to save us from hell. Because it's the very reason why he came. And because unless he comes to die, this is the destiny that awaits us all. That's why Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. In December of 1984, a a newspaper report from London documented a huge car crash along one of the local highways. And this was due to heavy fog. Early that morning, a delivery vehicle carrying paper crashed because of lack of, due to lack of visibility. And in response, warning lights quickly came up, hazard signs were put up, and police officers were deployed to stop people from crashing into the wreckage. But here was the issue in that particular crash, a crash where over 20 people were killed as a result. Driver after driver, trying to get to work, ignored the warning lights, ignored the hazard signs, and drove into the fog. And the newspaper report tells us that the officers, realizing what was happening, becoming possessed with fear as they saw the destruction taking place, they actually started to pick up traffic cones and throw them at the windscreen of the cars to try and stop the people from going on, but the people wouldn't stop. They just kept driving. And the newspaper report said this, that one of the policemen had tears running down his face as he threw the cones at the drivers who would pay no attention. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus is throwing cones at our windscreen here today. That's what he's doing in these verses. He's throwing cones. He's warning us. He's warning us to stop before it's too late. He's warning us that there is destruction ahead. And he's warning us that hell is real. And so what's it like? Hell is a place of punishment, where God, out of his justice and wrath, will punish all who stand opposed to his rule, all who exploit and oppress his people, and all who reject his son. Paul said it like this in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6 to 9. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Consider a few things with me from this passage. Notice that in these verses that God's punishment arises out of his justice. Notice that God's punishment is based on what is morally right and just, that God is just and therefore he will punish. That if God didn't punish, that he he let perpetrators of oppression and injustice get away with it, then he would no longer be just. But because God is just, hell exists. Secondly, notice in these verses that God's punishment is for all those who abuse, exploit, and oppress God's image bearers, that every abuse, every injustice, and every sin will be accounted for, from systemic sins like 
sex trafficking or genocide or gender-based violence to the personal sins of pride, lust, and greed. Because God is just, those who ravage fellow image bearers will be punished. Lastly, notice in these verses that God's punishment is for all those who reject God and don't obey the gospel. The Bible teaches that God will judge, condemn, and punish those who refuse to acknowledge him as creator and sustainer of all things. That God will punish those who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus. And that God would, for the sake of his name and his glory, send people to hell who reject him. And even in doing so, Paul can say that God is just. This is what the Bible teaches. Hell is a place of punishment. Secondly, hell is a place of separation, where those who are condemned will be separated from the mediated presence of God and the gifts of his common grace, only to face his wrath and punishment. Again, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 to 9. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. In hell, those who are condemned will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. And as such, hell is the culmination of telling God to get away from me. You keep telling God to leave you alone until finally God says, okay, That's why the Bible describes hell as darkness. God is light and his absence is darkness. On earth, we experience light and things like love and friendship and the beauty of creation. These are gifts of God's common grace to all of us. But when you tell God that you don't want him as Lord and as the center of your life, eventually you get your wish. He goes. And with God go all his gifts. In hell, those who are condemned will be shut out from the presence of the Lord, separated from all forms of his common grace. Therefore, that little old granny who had shown herself to be selfless, gentle, patient, forgiving, and amiable neighbor and may have a quaint funeral. But the person eulogized is not the person who she truly was, nor who she will become in the eternity to come. God has hidden her from us. At death, God repossesses all borrowed virtue, and the full torment of her wicked heart is unleashed. She will be given fully over to her sin. The hatred for God, the impatience, the lustful thoughts, the greed, the slander, the viciousness will all stampede forth. The evil that showed itself in seed form on earth will grow to be forests. The light of common grace will fade from her, and she'll be given to the darkness which she so loved. Her full depravity, now exposed, will cause the saints who cared most for her on earth to shudder. Sin, fully enthroned, dehumanizes. So while citizens in heaven are their most fallen on earth, citizens of hell are their most human on earth. This is what the Bible teaches. Hell is a place of separation. And lastly, most solemn of all, hell is everlasting. You see, punishment we can endure for a season. Separation we can cope with if we know when it would end. But the horror of hell is that the Bible describes it as being everlasting. 
they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Or in the words of Jesus, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now it's worth stopping and saying there are differing interpretations within the church concerning the duration of hell. And some of my brothers and sisters who are more godly and more clever than I am would argue that after a prolonged period of punishment and separation, hell and all who have been condemned there will be totally destroyed, annihilated, so as not to exist. And that view has been recognized as a valid orthodox position by the church. And while this is the case, I still personally and presently don't see that in the words of Jesus. The word he uses is eternal, that hell is eternal, and that is frightening. So what does all of this say to us? It says to us that God views your life with infinite seriousness, that God takes your relationship with him with infinite seriousness, that he takes you infinitely seriously. And if we reject that relationship, then we reject him who is life and the source of life. And in a strange way, God dignifies us by saying, I'll take your decision about your relationship with me with permanent seriousness. Thirdly, who is hell for? Now we've touched on this, but I'd like to point you to Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 47. Who is hell for you? according to Jesus. If your, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. So who is hell for, according to Jesus? Hell is for those who say, no one tells me what to do with my hands. No one tells me what to do with my feet. No one tells me what to do with my eyes. No one tells me what to do with my life. But the Bible responds, no. God made those hands, he made those feet, he made those eyes. He made you, and as your creator, he cares about what you do with your life, and as your creator, he alone has the authority to speak into your life. But hell is for those who choose to live as they please, and those who will not change. Hell is for those who refuse to submit to their creator and refuse to have God as their God. Hell is for those who refuse to take sin and its consequences seriously and who reject Jesus Christ and what he's done. They just won't do it. And so this leaves me with my last question. Can we escape the reality of hell? Yes. Because of the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus stood in our place and bore the hell that we deserve. Because on the cross, the wrath of God for our sin was poured out on him and was truly satisfied. Because on the cross, Jesus' punishment was barely describable. 
They would have beaten Jesus until he was barely recognizable. This bloody, disfigured remnant of a man was given a recycled, used cross, likely covered in the blood, feces, and urine of the other men who had used it previously. That the cross beam, which lay across his back with muscles and bones exposed, was made with rough-hewn timber with splinters and edges that would dig into his exposed skin with each excruciating step. With nail-pierced hands and feet, he would hang, suffocating to death, slowly choking on his own blood and vomit. These are the lengths that Jesus would go for you. On the cross, we see the seriousness of our sin and the horror of hell on full display. Yet we also see the love of our God, a God who would willingly take our place, who would willingly take the hell of our sin into his body and who would willingly die so that we might live and be saved from hell. That on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can gasp and cry, my God, my God, why have you accepted me? Why have you accepted me? How have you possibly done this, Lord? After all that these have done, after all my hands have done, after all what my eyes have done, after all that I've done, how can you accept me? One word, Jesus. Do you see that Jesus has so loved us that he's been prepared to enter our world and not just to do that, but that he would go to the very depths of our darkness and depravity, that he would humble himself even unto death so that we might live. So friends, the truth is that there's only one way that you go to hell. There's only one way that you go to hell, and that's this. You have to trample over the cross of Jesus. That Jesus blocks the way and he says, you're not going I paid in death and blood. He says, don't go, I'm blocking the way. But if you want to go to hell, you have to trample over the cross. Now, in centuries past, preachers would frequently finish their sermons with a single question. And I think that that's appropriate to finish the sermon in the same way. Here's the question. Where will you spend your eternity? Would you pray with me? Charles Spurgeon, a late English pastor and preacher, said these words, and they are my prayer for us as a community. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go there unwarned, and unprayed for. My encouragement to you as you reflect on your own family, perhaps people who don't know Jesus in your workspace, your family life, my encouragement is to not just live a life of wholeheartedly loving them, engaging in conversations, being with them, showing them the love of Jesus, but it's to pray and to pray and pray and pray that God in his infinite kindness and mercy would meet them in their sin, redeem them, and bring them into the beautiful union of his son, 
to bring them into the church. So those of you who have family members and friends who don't know Jesus, please pray. And my brothers and sisters, would we live in light of eternity? For too long, I have spent my time stuck in church routines, forgetting the eternal impact of what God calls us to. The reality of hell needs to shape the way we view our relationships and our friendships. Would God move us out of this place to love the lost, to love those who don't know Jesus before it's too late? And lastly, I want to recognize that for maybe some of you, you are not followers of Jesus and that this is a particularly hard message to hear. My prayer is that you would hear this truth and that you would do business with Jesus, that you would know that your eternity is on the line. Life is more than this and that you could, you could with, sure, with surety answer the question, of where you will spend your eternity. Amen.